The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Welcome back as we continue uh, studying uh, eschatology, end time uh, teaching. <clears throat> and uh, tonight we have a very sobering topic in front of us, uh, and that is the topic of hell. Next week we'll discuss heaven, and that will uh, close off our study on uh, eschatology. But let's uh, open with prayer if we might. Father, we do thank you for the time we have tonight uh, to be in your house, to be together with your people, to have the word of God open in front of us, O oh Lord. We pray that you would send forth your spirit. We acknowledge that all is darkness, O oh Lord, and confusion and uh, rebellion unless you send your spirit and work. Work in our hearts to give us understanding, O oh Lord. Work in our hearts to give us faith, O oh Lord. Work in our hearts to enable us to love your word and to cherish it. And work in us, O oh Lord, that we might put it into practice. Be with me, O oh Lord. Guard me from error. I pray that you'd be with all of us as we listen. Father, help us to... Uh, take in your word and be able to put it into practice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you all got a handout um, as we look tonight uh, at the topic of hell. Um, what is hell? Wayne Grudem gives us this definition. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Uh, probably one of the most famous sermons of all time is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. And in that, Edwards says this, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousands time more, times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. So that's dreadful language, if you think about it. Uh, obviously, he's preaching uh, this in order to warn sinners that they might repent from their sin and come to faith in Christ. Uh, John Piper, in dealing with this, you know, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God has been the butt of many jokes, has been um, uh, reviled uh, by uh, English classes and others in America. And he kind of wrestles with this, Piper does. Edwards, uh, as he's struggling with language to describe Revelation 19.15, uh, Revelation 19.15 says, Christ treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Uh, this is what Edwards says, the words are exceeding terrible. If it had only said the wrath of God, the words would have implied that which is infinitely dreadful, but it is the fierceness and wrath of God, the fierceness of Jehovah. Oh, how dreadful must that be? Who can utter or conceive what such expressions carry in them? And Piper uh, saying, why did uh, Edwards wrestle with such images is what he wrote. What high school student has ever asked to come to grips with what is really at issue here? The Bible is true, and if it says that someday Christ will tread his enemies like a winepress with anger that is fierce and almighty, and if you are a pastor charged with applying biblical truth to your people so that they will flee the wrath to come, then what would your language be? What would you say to make people feel the reality of texts like these? Edwards labored over language and over images and metaphors because he was so stunned and awed at the realities he saw in the Bible. 
Did you hear that one line in the quote I just read? Who can utter or conceive what such expressions carry in them? End quote. Edwards believed that it was impossible to exaggerate the horror of the reality of hell. Let me say that again. He believed it was impossible to exaggerate. There's no language I can give tonight that would be too extreme. Do you really believe that when you stop and think about it? The more you ponder it. I think about, uh, just from my science background, I think about the time I spent working in a lab and there was this electron beam reactor that was uh, bent through a magnetic field and zeroed in on this crucible. And uh, it bore down on this crucible and it and, uh, turned the metals in that crucible into a gas, which it then deposited on these silicon wafers. And I remember looking through polarized glass and through special, um, like welder's um, glasses, uh, through uh, two two levels of thickness of polarized glass, and it was still kind of bright. I, I had to look at it for you know, periods of time. And, and I remember thinking of, about that later on as a picture of hell. Uh, only instead of uh, an electron beam, instead of like a laser or something like that, you've got all of the omnipotence, the omnipotence of God, all of his, his intellect, all of his being, bearing down on created beings for their eternal destruction. What language can you use to describe something like that? God putting all of his mind and all of his might toward the eternal destruction of beings. It's terrifying when you think about it. Really terrifying. So uh, Piper continues, High school teachers would do well to ask their students the really probing question. Why is it that Jonathan Edwards struggled to find images for wrath and hell that shock and frighten, while contemporary preachers try to find abstractions and circumlocutions that move away from concrete, touchable, biblical pictures of unquenchable fire and undying worms and gnashing of teeth. Why? Okay, why did he do that and why did the preachers do this? That's what he's asking in that question. If our students were posed with this simple historical question, my guess is that some of the brighter ones would answer because Jonathan Edwards really believed in hell and most preachers today don't. Wow. So for me, as I'm teaching, this is not just an Acts class tonight. I'm not speaking about some myth or some movie or some novel. I'm speaking about a reality where Jesus tells us in the the calculus, the arithmetic of it, that the majority of human beings will end up. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, I don't know what math we put at that. Many, only a few. There's no point in me figuring out what that is, but you have a sense of it. Jesus gave you enough sense of it. And so that means the majority, definitely, of people that uh, live on this planet end up in hell. They end up in destruction. And because of the, the terrifying nature of this topic, it is naturally repugnant to human beings. I mean, the natural man hates this doctrine. Charles Darwin, in his autobiography, wrote of the spiritual slide that he made, he himself made, from acceptance of general Christian doctrine to complete unbelief. And the key step for him was his rejection of the doctrine of hell. That's what he said. I can hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. Now, just ponder that. I can't even imagine why anyone would even want it to be true. I would say the same thing about evolution. I actually do. Why would anyone want that to be true? That's what I think. But anyway, we can 
have that debate. But he's saying that about Christianity. Why? How can anyone possibly even want this to be true? For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all my best friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. Well, at least he's faithfully reading the Bible. You know, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell, and uh, he just can't accept that. But that is what it teaches. Increasingly, uh, sorry, interestingly, when his wife read the statement later in his autobiography, she, a devout Unitarian, whatever that means, um, wanted to edit it as too raw. She didn't like how it made him look. Um, in preparing the second edition of the autobiography, she wrote this note, quote, I should dislike this passage in brackets to be published. It seems to me raw. Nothing can be said too severe upon the doctrine of everlasting punishment for disbelief. So in other words, I agree with my husband about that. But very few now would call that Christianity. So in other words, to her, we can throw it out and that really isn't Christianity. We've, we've, shall I say, evolved past that doctrine. We don't have to believe those kinds of archaic things anymore. All right, this is not Christianity. Uh, there's the question of verbal inspiration that comes in as well. So his wife wrote these things. So basically what I'm saying is that the idea of hell is repugnant to the natural man. It's repug repugnant to the nat natural mind, something that we reject. Um, Christians struggle with it too. They really do. Um, I don't know whether Clark Pinnock is a Christian. I really don't. His slide has been so dramatic, similar, frankly, to Darwin's. But uh, he's wandered far from his evangelical roots. But this is what he said. I was led to question the traditional belief in everlasting conscious torment because of moral revulsion and broader theological considerations, not, first of all, on scriptural grounds. So that's important. It wasn't the Bible, text of scripture, that led him away from thinking about hell. It was more general considerations, more you know, broader theological thoughts that led him away from it, Clark Pinnock. Uh, it just does not make any sense to say that a God of love would torture people forever for sins done in the context of a finite life. It's time for evangelicals to come out and say that the biblical and morally appropriate doctrine of hell is annihilation, not everlasting torment. So it's better for us to believe in annihilation. We'll get to that uh, by and by. But then there's John Stott, who I do think is a Christian, uh, but who has erred on this particular point and probably for similar reasons. This is what Stott wrote. Emotionally, I find the concept of eternal conscious torment intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. But our emotions are a fluctuating, unreliable guide to truth. Amen to that, friends. So at least he's honest enough to say that at this point. And must not be exalted to the place of supreme authority in determining it. My question must be and is not what does my heart tell me, but what does God's word say? But, you know, the whole thing is, you know, if your heart is against something, it starts to be possible to twist the scripture and to start finding in words like destruction, that word, annihilation. And that's what he ends up doing. He can't think that these beings could continually be supported in, in consciousness and life. They must be being destroyed. And so that's what he ends up doing. Long story short, in these, in, on this page, you can see that this is a very difficult doctrine for people to accept. And... I wouldn't doubt that many among you also would struggle with it. And, and you might actually struggle more after we get done tonight than you did before you came here. Because we're talking in a very clear way about what the Bible says about it. And it's jarring. It's difficult. I remember one time I was 
um, riding with one of my children, we were talking about this. And I wanted to get across the idea of wailing and gnashing of teeth. And so I, I said, this is what it'll sound like. And I started screaming at the top of my lungs with the kind of passion that I thought that I would feel if I were suffering that kind of torment. I couldn't believe the sounds that were coming out of my own mouth. I don't think I'll ever forget the look on my daughter's face. <laughs> I think the point had been made. I'll probably never do it again, and I sure won't do it into this microphone. The idea is this, it's a terrifying thing. It's hard to imagine people wailing like that forever. The question we have to ask is, what does the scripture say? And how is it that we wrestle with it? How do we understand it, as uh, John Stott put it? First of all, Christ emphasized this doctrine. He spoke of it frequently. He spoke of it in great detail more than anyone else in the Bible. That's something that is not hard to prove. Dorothy Sayers put it this way. There seems to be a kind of conspiracy, especially among middle-aged writers of vaguely liberal tendency, to forget or to conceal where the doctrine of hell comes from. One finds frequent references to the, quote, cruel and abominable medieval doctrine of hell, or the childish and grotesque medieval imagery of physical fire and worms. But the case is quite otherwise. Let us face the facts. The doctrine of hell is not medieval. It is Christ's. It is not a device of medieval priestcraft for frightening people into giving money to the church. It is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. The imagery of the undying worm and the unquenchable fire derives not from medieval superstition, but originally from the prophet Isaiah, and it was Christ who emphatically used it. It confronts us in the oldest and least edited of the gospels, so she says, it is an explicit in many, it is explicit in many of the most familiar parables and implicit in many more. It bulks far larger in the teaching than one realizes until one reads the evangelist through instead of picking out the most comfortable texts. One cannot get rid of it without tearing the New Testament to tatters. We cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. Now you're going to see that when you look at the quotes that I pulled out here in a moment. There's not one or two. There are actually many of them. All right? Jesus Christ taught more about hell than anyone else in the Bible, and he taught more about hell than most of his topics. For example, Matthew 5.22. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, is in danger of the fire of hell. Now, that's a remarkable statement. Just if you say something like fool to somebody, you're in danger of hell. Well, why is that? Somebody that speaks like that is not heavenly. You see, it's not the way a heavenly being would speak in, in the way that Christ is talking about. And that means you're out of fellowship with heaven, you're in danger of hell. That's just the way he thinks. It's very binary, heaven, hell. It's two places. And if you're like that, you're in danger of the fire of hell, so Jesus said. Again, Matthew 5, 29 and 30. If your right eye, this is speaking about adultery in the heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Matthew 8, 11, 12. I'd say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside in the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Matthew 10, 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In the parable of the wheat and the weeds, Matthew 13, 41 and 42, uh, at the end, Jesus said this, The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Parable of the good and bad fish, Matthew 13, 49 and 50. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 18, 8 and 9. If your hand or foot cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye cause you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown in the fire of hell. Parable of the wedding banquet, Matthew 22, 13 and 14. Then the king told the uh, attendants... Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Matthew 23:15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Matthew 23:33. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how long will you escape being condemned to hell? Well, I'll tell you, if I heard that from the judge of all the earth, I would be shaking in terror. I mean, think about that. Jesus is saying, you're very soon going to be condemned to hell. And he's the one that would do it. How will you escape being condemned to hell? The faithful or unfaithful servant, Matthew 24, 50 and 51. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, in that same passage, sheep and the goats, uh, Matthew 25, 46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, the righteous to eternal life. That, by the way, was one of the most important verses on hell in the whole Bible. We'll get back to it. Mark 9, 43 through 49. If your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to end a life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Now that is a direct quote of Isaiah. So Jesus is quoting Isaiah the prophet there at the end of Isaiah's prophecy. Luke 12, 5. But I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Luke 13, 23 uh, through 28. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you. Or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. And then, of course, the uh, rich man and Lazarus passage in Luke 16, 23 and 24. In hell, 
Where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So I read all of those quotes to you uh, because I want you to see just how many there are, how important this doctrine was to Jesus. It's partially true to say that Jesus came into the world to rescue us from this. And, and also to say that Jesus came into the world to drink this for us on the cross as well. Because I don't think you can understand what Jesus did on the cross without understanding his doctrine of hell. Jesus drank hell on the cross. That's what he did. That was the cup from which he shrank. So he came to rescue us from hell. We cannot preach the gospel without this, by the way. You know, you shouldn't think, well, it's not right to scare people into heaven. Well, why did Jesus say these things? Why would he talk like this if we ought not to know these things? We ought to talk about this. Now, I know this is only part of the equation. There's also eternal life, and we'll talk about heaven next time. Uh, but that's the full persuasion of God to the human race is, is heaven and hell. And we can't just talk about heaven, however desirable it might be. We must talk about hell. All right, so how shall we describe hell? What does, how does the Bible describe it? We're going to go back through these passages and kind of, and other ones as well and mine out some assessments. First of all, what is the purpose of hell? Well, the purpose is the punishment of, uh, for sin, both sins of commission and sins of omission. Okay? Revelation 21.8 says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars... Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. I always thought it was interesting, the word cowardly there. The cowards are thrown out. In other words, the opposite of cowardice is courage, right? And so, therefore, it's the courageous that take the kingdom of heaven, you know, the ones that take it by force. There's just a certain courage to faith. Uh, There's a cowardice, however, that's punished by, by hell. Romans 2, 5, and 6. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. So this is a punishment for sin. Romans 2, 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath wrath of God is coming. Now this, because of this, uh, these verses and this uh, concept here, this point, we can get rid of the idea of saying that people get sent to hell only for one thing, and that is for not believing in Jesus. That is not true. People do not get to, uh, get sent to hell for not believing in Jesus alone. That is a sin, to not believe in Jesus. But they get sent to hell for their sins. That's why they get sent. And so people who have never heard of Jesus can be sent to hell. You may think that that's unjust, but it isn't. Romans uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2, uh, Romans 1 and 2 deals with that very clearly. It's not unjust. They know in their hearts that they're sinning, and they sin anyway. They know that. But people get sent to hell because they sin, and their sins are not forgiven. And so it says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming, and it lists specific sins. It's also a matter of sins of omission, like in the sheep and the goats. That's all sins of omission, if you look at it. You know, I was 
I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. That's all sins of omission. That's stuff that people didn't do. And because of that, they get sent to hell. So sins of uh, commission and omission, that's why people uh, get sent to hell. Secondly, the percentages I just covered. The majority of the human race, just as we saw on the facing page there, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? Well, what's Jesus' answer? seems like the answer is, yes, only a few are going to be saved. That's the question in Luke 12. He says it very plainly in in Matthew chapter 7. Only a few find it. What is the timing? Well, it happens after the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. Uh, verse 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. All right, so then that's the great white throne judgment. The judgment comes based on the actions of people recorded in the book. And then the lake of fire uh, happens right after that, verse 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in into the lake of fire. Matthew 13:42 uh, says they will throw them into the fiery furnace where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark 9, uh, 47, 48 says, Hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And then uh, Revelation 14, 10, 11, He too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of His wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. So the image here, the consistent image in these verses is that of fire or a lake of fire, a fire that is around the people all the time, like swimming in fire, something like that. Again, you might say, well, this is just metaphorical language. Well, can the reality be less than the metaphor? Oh, well, that was just a metaphor. This is actually easier than we thought it would be. It, can't, it cannot be. The language is less than the experience. It just gives you an idea of what it would be like. None of us, I think, have been all consumed by fire. I think if we had been, it would show on our faces. We'd have had plastic surgery or something if we had survived it. But I think we've seen perhaps images of people who have been consumed with fire and uh, burning and trying to get put out. But it's a, it's a horrible thing. It's a, it's a matter of, of, of uh, extreme pain and agony, the lake of fire. Um, there are these words Tophet and Gehenna which come in here. Tophet uh, in uh, Isaiah 30 verse 33 uh, is a picture, I think, of hell. Tophet, it says, has long been prepared, has been made ready for the king. Its fire pit has been made deep and wide with an abundance of fire and wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of burning sulfur, sets it ablaze. Tophet is also known as Gehenna. It was a real place near Jerusalem, a small valley south-southwest of Jerusalem. And there, wicked people of Judah, led by evil kings like Ahaz in 2 Chronicles 28.3 and Manasseh, 2 Chronicles 33.6, sacrificed their own children to Molech, burning them in the fire there. I chose not to give you the description of how it would actually go. It was so horrible it brought tears to my eyes. It reminds me of abortion, frankly. What they would do. And the screams of the children. Um, it was a terrifying thing. An awful thing. Something that, you know, it's... God says through the prophet Jeremiah, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. Now, this is not a limitation on God's omniscience. He knew about it before the foundation of the world. Literally, the Hebrew there says, nor did it enter my heart. It was something that he utterly rejected what they were doing. 
It's a horrible thing. Well, then Tophet became associated with judgment and slaughter. And the prophet Jeremiah said it would be filled with uh, dead bodies as a judgment from God. Jeremiah 7, verse 31 and 32, it says, They have built the high places of Tophet in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Tophet or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topheth until there's no more room. Now, in Christ's day, Gehenna was used as a garbage pit and it was constantly burning. The refuse and the dead animals of the city were being burned all the time. Can't imagine what that smelled like. Stench must have been horrible. Jesus picks up on this image as a picture of hell. In Matthew 5.22, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. And the Greek there is Gehenna. That's what it is. So it's, it's a picture Again, we can't conceive of it without these earthly things. We have to have these earthly metaphors so that we can have an idea of what we're talking about. Words like darkness, fire, lake, things like that. Um, stream of you know, burning sulfur, these kinds of things. These are all earthly images that give us an idea of what hell would be like. Sixthly, uh, people in hell are shut out from God's presence. It says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. Now, we who are Christians understand the significance of that. To be shut out from God is to be shut out from everything good. God is the source of everything good. That doesn't mean that God is not present in hell with His power. I want to talk about that in a, in a moment. But uh, it means that God is not present to bless. Whenever we speak of God being present, I will be with you, that kind of thing. You know, Moses didn't want to go, to go to Egypt and God said, I will be with you. The idea is always God's presence. Surely I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. The idea is God's presence to bless, to bring the, the joy of his, his presence there. And, and I said recently in a sermon, we, we who are, are Christians and we study the scriptures, we know that heaven is no heaven at all if Jesus isn't there. I don't care if your favorite foods are there. I don't care if you get to do your favorite activities forever. I don't care if all your favorite people are there. If Jesus isn't there, it's not heaven. Well, Jesus isn't in hell. Not like that. Not to bless. God is not in hell. And you know, what's really amazing is that lost people will, will, not, will not realize until they get there what a big loss that is, even for them in their present state. Remember that God has loved them their whole lives. He has loved them their whole lives. Remember how Jesus, on the, on the basis of that, commands us to love our enemies because God loves his enemies, right? And he has loved them every day of their earthly lives. He gave them rain and he gave them sunshine and he gave them food and everything they ever enjoyed. Even if they misused those pleasures and became idolatrous with them, they still came from God. They'll all be gone in hell. Nothing left of God except his wrath. And that's a terrifying thing. Shut out from the presence of, of God. Excluded from heaven. You've already heard some of the passages where people are on the outside banging to get in and they won't open the door. They won't let them in. And that, you know, it's a terrifying thing. You know, Matthew 8, 12 says the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But Matthew 22, 13, tie them hand and foot and throw them outside into the darkness. That's in the, the, the wedding banquet parable. You remember where the, the messengers are sent out to fill the wedding banquet. And so they go out in the streets and gather anybody and everybody they can find. The whole hall is filled with all kinds of people. And there's a, a man there who doesn't have any wedding clothes on. You remember? And he said, how did you get in here? And uh, the man is speechless. There's nothing he can say. And, and he's commanded to uh, uh, his servants to tie him hand and foot and throw him outside because he's not properly dressed. 
You think, well, that's incredibly harsh, but it's a picture of Judgment Day, and I believe the dress is righteousness. I think it's the imputed righteousness of Christ. And if you don't have that, you'll be thrown outside. And so, the, again, there's that language, throw him outside. Matthew 25, 11 and 12. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Matthew 25, 30. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I already mentioned this. Luke uh, 13, 28. There'll be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. Revelation 22. Outside, it says are the dogs. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city outside of the dogs. Those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. They're excluded. And I tell you, they will bitterly regret it. They will yearn to be there and that yearning will just be part of the torture. They, they clearly, in these, these stories, they want to come in and they're not allowed to. They, they want to be there, and they can't. And I've said this before, even if there were no hell as we're describing it, it would be a kind of hell to not be included in heaven if you just understood how great it is to be there, to just be excluded. And so I've, I've said before, this is a, a doubly infinite punishment for them. Positive wrath and the absence of all the good that heaven is. It's, it's a double punishment, just like the, the blessed in heaven have a double blessing, which is they get to be in heaven and they don't have to be in hell. And so it's, it's a very, very potent thing. Friends, store these things up inside yourselves so that you can share the gospel, okay? Store this up, if in fact all of you are in Christ tonight. Store it up, okay? Store it up so that you can go tell the truth to the people that you're sharing the gospel with. And you may have to become undignified. And it may actually put a kink in your relationship. It may actually become a bit awkward. Is it worth it to you to, su to suffer that awkwardness in talking to a, a non-Christian person? That's the question you have to ask. Number eight, and this is the very issue that we talked about at the beginning, it is a conscious punishment. They're aware of it. They know what's going on. Uh, Luke 16, in hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip uh, the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. He is having a conversation. He's thinking. He's aware of his suffering. He knows who he is. He remembers his history. He knows that he has brothers who are in danger of the same hell. It's a conscious thing for him. He's very well aware of what's going on. It's a place, number nine, of great torment. In hell, it says, where he was in torment. Uh, Luke 16, 25, you're in agony. Uh, Luke 16, 28, I have five brothers. Let them, uh, him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. It says in, Re in Revelation 14, 11, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. It's a place of torment. Okay? We should not minimize this. It's not just a place of regret. It's a place where God himself is tormenting them. He's pouring out his wrath on them making them suffer. Uh, tenth, eternal punishment. This is another point of contention. Eternal punishment. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. We'll come back to that. Mark 9.43, hell where the fire never goes out. That's because it's eternal punishment. Revelation 14.11, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night. It just goes on and on. It's a, it's a destruction. This is the word that... Uh, John Stott and other annihilationists uh, zero in on, say, well, if, you're, if it's a destruction, then you're destroyed. 
And at some point, you will cease to exist. They assume that the word destruction means that with it comes a time in which you cease to exist. You have been destroyed, etc. And the language comes, though, from 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they'll be punished with everlasting destruction. So it is a destruction. It's just an everlasting destruction. In other words, in some mysterious way, God sustains the existence of these beings. He continues to sustain their existence. And we should not imagine that God isn't the one doing that. Who else can do it? Who else can sustain the existence of a being but God? We do not posit another God who's in charge of that. It is God who does this. He's the one that sustains their existence. He willed them into existence at a certain point, and he will not will them out of existence. So therefore, you know, when people are, are in agony and in their lives and are considering suicide and all kinds of things, at least they'll have some peace. They cannot will themselves out of existence. It cannot be done. You understand that? It's not theirs to do. They can't stop existing. Why? Because God has willed their existence, just like they couldn't do anything to exist to begin with. It was something God chose. And so they will exist forever and they will be eternally destroyed. And it's a place of eternal regret. I've often thought about this. Matthew 13, 50, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. There's an emotional torment going on here. Psychological, mental. It has to do with memories. And I've actually said this to non-Christians while witnessing to them. I think it is possible that if you don't believe in Christ and you're suffering in hell, you'll remember this day and this conversation and you'll regret it. That conversation didn't end well, I remember that. Um, I was just saying earlier that, talk about moments of awkwardness, but I just felt led by the Lord to say that at that particular moment. You, 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 you may very well remember this and regret it. And I actually think, if they have a full memory of their lives, I think they'll regret the, the, the opportunities they had to hear the gospel, regret those more than any of their sins. There's so many of the sins, so many. They'll regret those, I think. But they'll regret the chances where God was gracious to them. And again, you understand, God doesn't owe any of us a hearing of the gospel. None of us. That's just grace. But some people get actually multiple chances, multiple hearings of the gospel, and they rejected them all. Never came to believe. They were raised in Christian families, perhaps. Saw godly parents living their lives, heard sermons every week. You know, those that you, you've heard them, that those that my parents shove religion down my throat. Oh my goodness. You know. But they, if they don't repent, they will have opportunity to regret all of that religion that they rejected, that they hated. Place of eternal regret. Remember what Abraham says to uh, the rich man's son. Remember that in your lifetime, such and such, such and such. Oh, my goodness. Is he going to be able to do that? Will they remember their lifetime? Yes, they will. Remember all the good things you had, rich man? Remember all the things you ate and there's Lazarus and the dogs were licking his sores at your gate and he longed to feed himself with whatever scraps would fall from your table and you gave him nothing? Do you remember that? All right, it's a place of eternal regret. Place of utter darkness. God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good, you see. All right, but this is a place of eternal darkness. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that the darkness will spread over Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. Do you wonder what that is? What does that mean? A darkness that can be felt, almost like a physical darkness that's there, something that takes up space, this inky blackness. It's a terrifying thing. It says in 2 Peter 2.17, speaking of false teachers, blackest darkness is reserved for them. 
and cast him, Jesus said, into outer darkness. So again, these extra words. It's not just darkness, it's outer darkness. Blackest darkness is reserved. A darkness that can be felt. Okay, I think this also testifies to the absence of God. God is light, so it means that God is not there to bless. By the way, what would you say then to somebody who says, well, I just as soon go to hell where I can be with all my friends. I've thought about that often. I've thought there are just at least ten different ways to answer that. Okay, While they're screaming at the top of their lungs, and so are you, there's not going to be much opportunity for fellowship. Secondly, it's going to be pitch black and you won't see them. They'll just be yet another tormented soul screaming. I mean, what, what foolishness. How Satan has lied to people. How he deceives them about these things. It's up to us to tell the truth. We are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. This is the truth. Or the Bible isn't true. This is a striking thing, number 14. Christ directly observing. That's what the verse says. Revelation 14, 10. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Christ is not squeamish or embarrassed about what he's doing to the damned. Neither are the holy angels. You may be, tonight, as you're sitting here listening to this, you may be squeamish, you may be embarrassed, you may think, oh boy, I'm glad I didn't invite my non-Christian friends. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what I'm thinking. I have tendencies towards squeamishness. I've actually had the picture before of a fifth-grade bully beating up on a third-grade kid, and the third-grade kid has a brother who's a black belt expert in karate who comes and whoops up on the fifth grader to the point where the third grader says, okay, that's enough, thank you, uh, you know, it's just too much. It's so over the top for what was done, you see. That's the image I have, but it's wrong. Because all of us underestimate the greatness of a sin against an infinite being like God. The, we underestimate the seriousness of sinning against the glory of God, of saying no to the glory of God, of exchanging the glory of God and wanting sin instead. We underestimate that. It's not over the top, but here's the thing. Christ is not ashamed or embarrassed of what he's going to do to the lost. It is righteous for what he is doing. And this is what the angels say again and again when they're pouring out wrath on the earth. They're saying, you are right, righteous you are, Lord, holy and true. They're getting what they deserve. And so the angels are watching, and um, the lamb is watching. And the lamb is more than just watching. He is doing it, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is something that they're doing. It's not something that's happening in a corner and he's not aware of it. Or like it runs automatically. Will we be conscious of it? Well, think about that. Will we be conscious of hell? Well, let's just start with the scripture. Was Abraham conscious of the rich man in hell? Was he conscious of it? Yeah, he was having a conversation with him. Did Abraham seem overly troubled and in anguish over the rich man in hell? Not at all. His heavenly bliss isn't interfered with at all. Will you be aware, therefore, of the damned in hell? Yes, you will. God isn't going to keep any secrets from you like we can't tell the children. You know, we're embarrassed about how we're not going to tell the children. They, they just need to be happy here in heaven while we're doing this thing. No, he, he is going to welcome you into his wisdom and counsel. You're going to think like he does about everything. You understand that? And so you will delight in and rejoice in it. Hence those imprecatory psalms, you know, where, you know, David in Psalm 130 said, Oh, that you would destroy the wicked. Now, for us, we're still hoping while there's time, while it's the day of salvation, that the wicked will become righteous. So we pray for our enemies, we reach out with the gospel, we weep for them, we yearn for them, we do all that while there's time. But after that, it's done. There's nothing else to be done except to celebrate in their destruction. And if you're not ready 
to think of it that way, you will be someday because that's the only right way to think about it. There's not going to be any secrets in heaven and you will think about hell the way God does. And you will not regret a single person that's there. You'll not wish they were over here because then you'd be impugning the justice of God and what he's doing. You will delight in what he's doing. It will bring you great joy. And again, I know you can't think of it. It's like, what am I? We're going to become some monsters? No, God isn't a monster. We'll become like God. And we will delight in what he's doing. So there it is. Christ is directly observing. Now, let's refute this other foolish statement. God doesn't send anyone to hell. Have you heard this before? It goes something like this. Uh, It's made by evangelicals who affirm the doctrine of hell. Yes, there is a hell. But they try to separate it from God, as though God isn't doing it. They say something like this. God doesn't actually send anyone to hell. Rather, they go of their own free will. For all their lives, they have chosen to go their separate ways from God, and now he is merely giving them what they have always chosen. Have you heard anything like this before? That is rubbish. It is absolute rubbish. You know why? Because on Judgment Day, when the issues are clear, and when people understand what heaven is, and they understand what hell is, is anybody going to choose of their own free will to go there? No one will choose it. They will all have to be cast there. And they will be cast there. God will send his angels and will throw them there. They will be cast outside into the darkness. That's the thing. It's something that God does to people. It's, it's something that he brings about. It's his judgment on them. <clears throat> it's not something they choose of their own free will. No one chooses hell. People choose pleasure. They choose what they think will bring them the greatest joy. They choose their idols. But they don't choose hell. Nobody does. Hell is something God does to them. Okay? So all these verses teach that uh, the subjects of the kingdom are thrown outside, etc. They're thrown out, etc. And Christ isn't ashamed or embarrassed. All right, what about annihilationism? <clears throat> Perhaps at this point you're thinking, that sounds like a good option. You know, it's such a horrible thing. But first of all, we've already covered so much scripture. I don't think, I don't know how you could possibly think it's a viable option. How could it be? All right, what is annihilationism? J.I. Packer said it is a view that holds that unsaved souls will cease to exist after death. Okay? That at some point they will no longer exist. They will go out of existence. But as I already told you before, God upholds their existence. That's the alternative. Either they become annihilated, they go out of existence, or they continue to exist. If they continue to exist, then it is God who continues their existence. And I think the scripture teaches that they continue to exist. Now, universalists taught that Christ's atonement was effective for all the human race, therefore no one would be in hell. So, this is all just warning and metaphorical language, or I don't know what it's for. I, I, I note that universalists aren't too concerned about precision in biblical interpretation. They don't worry about it too much because the Bible doesn't teach universalism. But uh, they basically say that hell, if it exists, is an empty place. There's no one there. Why? Because Christ's blood atoned for the entire human race. Uh, They eventually united with the Unitarians who taught that Jesus isn't truly God, that there is only one God, etc. Just different forms of unbelief coming together. That's all it is. But universalism is the idea that Jesus' blood shed on the cross actually does, isn't just sufficient for it, but it actually does atone for everyone. All the Buddhists, all the Muslims, all the atheists, all the everybody's, all the denominations of Christ, everybody 
is atoned for by Jesus' death. Well, eventually what happens is, well, then it doesn't matter what you believe, right? Right, exactly. It doesn't matter what you believe. Well, then it doesn't matter whether it was actually Jesus' blood that atoned for it. Right, eventually you just aren't Christian anymore is what ends up happening. Because it just, it doesn't make a difference what you believe and then it just gets away. I've often wondered, what do they do on Sunday? Do they meet on Sundays, the Unitarian Universalists? Do they actually meet on, what do they do? I wonder what they talk about Tell me later. I'm just curious. I, I don't know what there is to discuss. But the idea of universalism started out as a doctrinal teaching that Jesus' blood emptied the place. There is no one in hell. All right? Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses teach annihilationism. So do the Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, recently, as I mentioned, some, very few, but some evangelicals have embraced it, like John Stott, unfortunately, annihilationism. Uh, there are four central lines of defense that they give. Uh, first is what uh, J.I. Packer calls a somewhat eccentric word study on the Greek word eternal. That's important, by the way. <laughs> You've got to do some interesting things with that word eternal. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment, but uh, there it is. Um, the usual sense of destruction is of something being acted on until it ceases to exist. They argue that the idea of immortality of the soul is an import from Platonic philosophy, which is utterly false. Um, the absent from the body, present from the Lord verse teaches that something must be absent from the body and present with the Lord. What would you like to call that? It seems like soul would be a good word for that. And it's not a Greek idea, it's a biblical idea. The idea of eternal punishment for finite acts done in time seems disproportionate, as we've already mentioned, out of place for a God of justice. Stott says this, I question whether eternal conscious torment is compatible with the biblical revelation of divine justice. Unless perhaps, as has been argued, the impenitence of the lost also continues throughout eternity. So in other words, he thinks there really should be nothing that you can do in space and time that would equal an infinite punishment. That's the way they think. But again, there's no verses to support this. Note this. There's no argumentation here from Scripture. This is just, it doesn't make sense to me that such and such, etc. Um, fourth, the saints' joy in heaven would be marred by knowing that some continue under merited retribution. Well, I just covered that. No, it's not. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be grieving over anyone in heaven because then I would be violating a scripture verse that says I'm not allowed to grieve in heaven. Doesn't it say in Revelation 21.4, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain? So no matter how much you may want to grieve and mourn in heaven, you just won't be allowed to. Oh, that's a strange way of putting it. Let's put it this way. You're going to be rejoicing in heaven. You're going to be glad to be there. There'll be no dark side. There'll be no, no grieving time. We're not going to set aside two hours a day to mourn the lost. Nothing of the kind. We will celebrate everything God has done. So, but that's the, the way they say it. They say, how can we enjoy heaven when there are all these people in hell? Well, that's how they argue. How do we refute it? Well, let's just refute it by scripture. That's the best way. Matthew 24, 25, 46 is the clearest. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Why is that such an important verse? Well, let's take the second half. Where do the righteous go? Well, eternal life. Well, how do you understand the word eternal there? How does it hit you? Like 1,000 years? 500 years? 550,000? What does eternal mean to you? I think it means it has no end. Everlasting. That's the whole idea. So that we could sing this kind of thing, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days. It's an infinite number of days or time we have there. Well, then you go back to the beginning of the verse. Then they will go away to that kind of punishment. You see, that's why this is a very important verse. The same kind of experience in terms of time that we will have in heaven, they will have in hell. 
There's a parallelism to this verse. There's really no way to get around it. I don't know how you do it. The destruction mentioned in the Bible is clearly said to be eternal, as we already mentioned. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, eternal destruction. Although the sin against God... And by the way, you think about where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, the, the idea there is of a, an ongoing existence supported by God. Uh, a fire needs fuel. He supports it. He keeps it going. He keeps the, the worm alive. He keeps the body alive as well. So that's something God is choosing to do. Um, though the sin against uh, God is done in finite life and in time, yet it is of infinite weight since God himself is an infinite being. Friends, this is essential to our atonement. Didn't Jesus die in space and time? Wasn't it a certain given day? Wasn't it a few hours that he was on the cross? Doesn't it have infinite value and worth, what he did in space and time? Yes, it does. Why? Because he's an infinite being. He's the son of God. And so he can, in a single day, atone for the sins of the whole land, as it says in an Old Testament prophecy. So he's an eternal being. Well, then you turn it around. Then sin against him, even if it happens just one time in space and time, is an infinite thing, you see. That's why when Jesus, when they came to him and, and they said, it is by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he drives out demons. You remember the answer Jesus gave? It was like five answers he gave to that. And one of them is, you'll have to give an account on the day of judgment for what you just said. It's, it's not going to go away. It's written down now. You said it. It's a scary thing when you think about it, that people can say things in space and time and then it has eternal consequences. But that's part of what Jesus answers. In, in that, you can't just say those things free of charge. Aren't we right in saying that you are Samaritan and demon possessed? What? You wouldn't even say that just in common everyday. Aren't we right in saying you're demon possessed? But they were saying it to the Son of God in such a disrespect. And his answer is you'll have to give an account for what you just said. That's what he's saying. So be careful about your words. J.I. Packer said this, the fourth argument is that the saints' joy in heaven would be marred by knowing that some continue under merited retribution. But this cannot be said of God as if the expressing of his holiness and retribution hurts him more than it hurts the offenders. And since in heaven Christians will be like God in character, loving what he loves and taking joy in all his self-manifestation, including the manifestation of his justice, in which indeed the saints in Scripture take joy already in this world, there is no reason to think that their eternal joy will be impaired in this way. So that's his way of saying basically what I've been saying. So... Uh, God doesn't struggle. And by the way, you know, so I can't think, I can't imagine that a loving God would send anyone to hell. Well, God is expressing his love by sending people to hell. I do not say he's expressing his love for them. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying he's expressing his love. For example, his love for justice. God loves justice. He's expressing his love for the resultant universe that comes when all of the evil people are collected in one place along with Satan and all of his demons and they're all being punished in that place and unable to influence anything else ever again. He loves that. So it actually is an expression of love that he's doing this, you see. Now, it's true it's not an expression of love to those individuals, but it is an expression of love. It's very hard for us, I think, to conceive of the attributes of God, all of them perfectly harmonized all the time, but they are. God's justice is loving. His love is filled with wrath. His wrath is loving and just. It all works together. I can't figure that out. But it's not like he's compartmentalized, made of pieces that you can assemble. So all the time he is perfectly uh, together. There's no conflict within him, etc. And uh, so I've already mentioned Psalm 139. Now how do we apply this doctrine? Well, first of all, we should fear this. Jesus said so. Fear him who has the power to do this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You say, now wait a minute, I thought I was... 
I thought I was rescued from this. Well, you are. If you're in Christ, you are rescued from this. We'll get to that in a moment. But we should still fear the Lord. We should fear the Lord who can do this. We should fear Him. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the foundation of our holiness. The fact that God sees everything. And and actually, this is exactly how the Apostle Paul appeals to Christians in Ephesus and Colossae to be holy. In both letters, he says, because of of sexual immorality and, and, and idolatry and anger and wickedness, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming, so you ought not to do them. You see how he's reasoning. Because God will punish people who do these things in hell, you who have been delivered from hell ought not to do them. So for us, we ought to fear a God who's going to punish people who do those sins and don't do those sins. That's what, that's the way the whole reasoning goes. So fear Him, uh, the one who can do these things. And as I just mentioned, this is a motive for personal holiness. Jesus said, it'd be better for you to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand than to sin. And you know, you look at that as this metaphorical language. Well, that I think actually is metaphorical. Because we know that, that lust comes from the heart. The heart being a part of the soul, of the mind, of your inner being. So cutting off the hand isn't going to solve a lust problem. And imagine the anguish of somebody who thinks that they can solve their lust problem by gouging out their eye, and then now they're lost with their eye, and they're still lusting as much as they ever were. But what Jesus is saying there is you should fight sin with everything you have because hell is so serious. That's, That's about his logic there, that 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 hell is a motive for personal holiness. Thirdly, sorrow for the lost. Isn't this exactly what Paul says in in, uh, Romans chapter 9 when he talks about the Jews? You know, he's dealing with the whole issue of unbelieving Jews. And he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. It's an incredible thing he's saying there. We've finished tonight, almost finished, a teaching on hell. He says, I would go there if I could to rescue my na- the nation. I would do it. That's not a light statement. But notice how he says it. Be very careful. I could wish. It can't be. It is not God's way. He's... He's not asking for a second person like Christ to then atone in a second way. It it cannot be. He's just expressing his love for his people. But he's also expressing great sorrow and unceasing anguish. I think, to me, when I preached it, I was convicted. I'm convicted tonight that I do not feel this the way I should. That I don't look at perishing people like I should. Like you could be in hell tonight or tomorrow. And, and to have that motivate me. Others, evangelists and missionaries, have had that lively sense. And it's motivated them to far greater efforts in evangelism and missions than they ever had before. They thought of it. They wept over it. It motivated them. Can you actually work yourself into that? I think you can. I think you can. It all has to do with meditation. It has to do with thinking about these things. And then applying them to specific people. Imagining them suffering. Thinking about it. Praying about it. Until you get upset. Should you do that? I think you should. I think I should. I think we should stir ourselves up. Just like we say to our souls, you know, awake my soul and sing. You know, you, you talk to your soul and get yourself to feel some godly thing of joy or whatever. Well, this is godly to, to lament over the lost. Fourthly, this should lead us, of course, to zeal in evangelism and prayer. These are great issues. Did Jesus think about hell while he was walking the earth? Did he think about this? Well, he talked about it a lot. 
So I think this is exactly why he wept over Jerusalem. Great sorrow in his heart over the, the lost. And so it should lead us in, uh, in evangelism and prayer, praying for them. And, and uh, trusting in the justice of God, just to think that this is just of God and to meditate on it. Allow it to there's, there's one other that I didn't list here. Can you think what it, what it is? How about, how about this? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What, what does that lead you to think after tonight's teaching? What do you feel about that? You are not going to have to go to hell if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you will not have to suffer any of the things I've described tonight. None of them. Should you not be thankful? <laughs> Should you not be thanking Jesus with tears of gratitude? Should you not stop complaining about things in your life? <laughs> Whatever they may be. Shouldn't it lead you to an incredible happiness and joy for yourself personally, even while you can be sorrowful for those that are lost? Didn't Paul say, sorrowful yet always rejoicing? So there ought to be a great joy and thankfulness in our hearts that we have been delivered from this and thankfulness to the one who did it. It's someone who saved you from this. His name is Jesus. He carried your cross. He drank your cup. The, the, the lashing that he received, that was your lashing. You deserve that. That's why I think about all of his sufferings. I deserve that, I deserve that, and that, and that, and that. And worse, because of hell. He did that. Thank him for it. Uh, be motivated. When you come here on Sunday, come here ready to praise God. Let it never be said of this congregation that we are dead in corporate worship or disengaged or whatever. Come in motivated, all right? Ready to go. And don't worry about what songs were selected. I can personally vouch for Eric and for our process that there will be no heresy in any of the songs, all right? That they'll capture some aspect of biblical truth. Join in, please. And thank God for it, whether it's your favorite song or not. Sing it from your heart enthusiastically. You have been rescued from perishing eternally. Close with me in prayer. Father, these are sober things that we've covered tonight, and I know that I'm not fully captured by them. I know that. I, I feel in my heart still a disconnect from the doctrine. But God, I don't want that to stay there. I want to understand fully and believe fully and feel fully what I need to about this doctrine of hell. And I pray, O oh Lord, for my brothers and sisters that are here, that you would work these same things in them. And God, I pray if there are any lost people that you brought here tonight, that they would fear and that they would realize that Jesus shed his blood on the cross, that they personally, that they might have eternal life, that they would call on his name and say, Save me, O Lord. Save me. Because it says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when the non-Christian asks, somewhat cynically and ignorantly, Save from what? Well, we know the answer now. Save from this. Save from hell. Save from judgment. Oh, God, thank you for that. And I pray that you would move anyone here that is not saved, that they would be saved. And help us, O oh Lord, to be faithful to take this gospel uh, to those that are perishing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.